0: And we'll start with a little Nigoon here before we jump in to session number 10.
1: died, 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 this is called Hanashamalach, that my soul goes to you. Got it? Hi, part I da, I died, 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 I I died,
0: Shalom, friends. Thank you for joining. Oh, yes, if we can set it up so everyone can see each other. Oh, no, we'll do that in the conversation mode. We're going to start off with the slideshow, and then after the slides, then we'll move where everyone can see each other. So, friends, thank you for joining. Happy Tuesday to you. Hope you had a nice Labor Day. We are at session 10 now of, uh, of, the, Malachot, of the Malachot, and today for session 10, we're going to talk about lush, kneading. I'm sorry about the time change again next week will be the last session at 11 a.m. Pacific and then we'll go back to our 10 a.m. I know a we lost a number of folks who could only attend the 10 a.m. Who are listening to the recording and we'll get them back hopefully next week and hopefully we won't lose any of you Although Barbara I know we're losing you because you could only do 11. So um, The 10th malakha of, of lush is kneading. How many of you have ever kneaded dough? Anyone ever kneaded dough here? Okay This is the first prohibition which is distinct from the other malachot that we've already looked at previously, because in the previous weeks, we looked at malachot that share the characteristic of differentiation, separating objects to make them smaller. Lush, however, changes the paradigm. Now the malacha is about joining together smaller items into one larger mass. Lush was done in the mishkan, in the tabernacle, to produce the lechem hapanim, the showbread and to produce the dyes by mixing ground herbs and water into a paste. When we talk about lush, typically the discussion is in regard to the process of mixing flour and water to make dough or making a thick salad dressing, for example. But obviously lush goes well beyond food as well, extending to other realms such as hair braiding or mixing sand or dirt with liquid. Now in reflecting on the spiritual nature of kneading, one might think about the process as joining together the physical and the spiritual. Flower is clearly a physical, material object. Water, however, in Jewish thought, is Torah, the spiritual dimension, right? Mayim is Torah, constantly shared that way. Both Miriam, Miriam is the, is the, um, the guardian of Torah because she is the, brings the wells of water um, and the power of w- the water to sustain the world the power of the, to create the world and to create life through water, or the idea of the, um, the fetus who has mastered the Torah and then with a little strike under the nose forgets all of that Torah as the fetus is uh, leaving the water. The Talmud articulates the metaphor beautifully as it says, there is no water other than Torah. That comes from Bava Kama 82a. There's no water other than Torah. Anytime the Torah mentions water, it means Torah. So when needing, or even when eating bread, which has been kneaded, one might reflect on our power to elevate the physical towards spiritual ends. One might suggest, um, at least one explanation of all of Judaism could be, it is to, to, to intertwine the physical and the spiritual, or to elevate the physical with the spiritual. That is the, our relationship to holidays, to brachot, to various uh, uh, things we do such as uh, marital sexual relations, anything we engage in which can be merely physical, elevated to a a higher spiritual end. To think about needing invites us to focus not only on the process, but also on the people who effectuate the process. Due to the laborious nature of needing, we can turn our consciousness toward the workers, whether it's uh, someone working in the home or someone working in a factory. We can remind ourselves of the story of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter where in in Buber, Buber says it's actually not Salanter, it's Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, but it's most commonly told of Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musar movement, and how he taught his students that the most important thing to check in the matzah factory was not the ritual kashrut, but how the women kneading the dough were being treated. Again, we've, we've talked about this before, the idea that the matzah is not kosher because the women were being mistreated in the work. Now, here's an awesome, awesome, Uh, passage in Bereshit, in Genesis, where needing comes up. I think it's probably the first time coming up. I can't say that with certainty, but I can't think of another time. So I think it's pretty safe to say. Here we go. Avraham and Sarah, the famous case at the tent. Avraham just had his bris milah. He just had his circumcision, his bris milah, and now he is being visited by God, the hachnas at urchim, the hospitality and the Bikur Chalim, the visiting the sick. And now he's going to extend um, the Hachnasat the Urchim to the angels, or to the Arabs, whoever these three people are. Here, here's what it says in Genesis 18. God appeared to him, to Avraham, in the plains of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted his eyes. Now, the, the, the commentators always say that that phrase means prophecy. Lifting of the eyes in the Torah means it's a prophetic moment. So Avraham lifts his eyes, and there were three men standing before him. Avraham saw them, and he ran to greet them, even though he's still in recovery. He ran to greet them from the entrance to the tent and bowed toward the ground. He said, my Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, please do not leave your servant. So he experienced, okay, so, oh, oh, so here's the other cool thing here, just as another tangent. This is another case where ben adam le chavero is more important than Ben-Adam-Le-Makob. That means ethics is more important than our God-human relationship. Why? Avraham is in, a, in conversation with God, and then he leaves the conversation with God to greet these three people, right? He lifts up his eyes, prophetic moment. He sees the three people. He leaves the presence of God in order to go reach out to these three people. And actually, I think about this all the time when I'm trying to pray at home and my children are pulling up my legs <laughs> um, and asking for stuff. And, um, um, you know, what does it mean to break the God consciousness for, I guess you could say a different kind of God consciousness, the, you know, the human response. So, um, okay, here we go. Take some water and wash your feet, Abraham says, and rest under the tree. I will fetch some bread and you will satiate yourselves. Then go on. in as much as you have passed your servants way, they said, do so just as you have said. Okay. Now let me give another tangent before we keep going here. Um, it's very interesting that he says, wash your feet. Why would he say wash your feet? That's very strange. In Judaism, we have wash your hands. Muslims, Muslims have wash your feet, but Jews don't wash the feet as a religious practice. You could say this is something like cleaning up to come in. It's comfortable, it's, it's hygienic, um, you know, wash your feet. People don't have closed shoes like we have today. There's all kinds of explanations you can give, but here's my explanation here, that famously at Sodom and Gomorrah, Stone and Amurah, where they hate the stranger, Avraham hears the stories, as recorded in the Midrash, that they would cut off the guest's feet in order that the guest could fit in the bed. And Avraham wants to go to the opposite extreme. When you see evil of one extreme, you run to the other extreme of chesed, of kindness. And so you see the extreme of them cutting off guest feet. Avraham, for some strange reason, goes the opposite extreme and says, wash your feet, wash your feet. As a guest, we care about your feet. We're going to take care of you. So that's, um, that's my explanation I've been, I've been kind of grappling with over there. Okay, paragraph three. So Avraham hurried to the tent to his wife, Sarah, and said, hurry, these measures of fine flour, knead them and make cakes. There's need. That's the word we're going to come back to. Again, Avraham says to Sarah, knead them and make cakes. Then Avraham ran to the cattle, took a good tender calf, and gave it to the youth who hurried to prepare it. He took cream and milk. Now here's a good other uh, conflict because there's a number of cases in Bereshit that don't seem to follow the laws of Kashrut. He took cream and milk as well as the calf, which he had prepared, and he placed these before them. Okay, he's mixing meat and milk. That seems to be against um, uh, the Torah's law over there about not mixing meat meat and milk. Um, So what's going on over there? So uh, he stood before them under the tree and they ate. Okay, thank you. Okay, so this is very interesting. I love this passage. There's so much to grapple with here, but I just want to look at the one word, need. Hurry, he says to Sarah, to his wife. <laughs> Hold on, go back for one second. Three measures of flour, knead them and make cakes. Okay, next, next slide, thank you. Um, wh- so the question is, why does he say to her, need? Why does he say, need? See how he's prostrating himself there before the angels? That's a great, that's a great picture before the, the, the guests. And there he's talking with Sarah on the, on the ground. And he says, need. So why does he say need them? He could have just said, make cakes. You know, make, you know um, he could have just said, uh, what is it? What's the word over there? Uh, make cakes. Yeah, make cakes. He says, he says take, eat, take the flour and make cakes. But he says, need them. Why does he say that? So I have two or three suggestions here. And then, of course, I want to hear yours as well. Why does he say to Sarah need why not just say make cakes? Why does Abraham want to demonstrate his awareness of the extra steps involved in the process? My first suggestion was that it could be a sensitivity towards how laborious the process is for Sarah. Right? He could have just said, he could have just said make cakes. But by saying, hurry, 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 knead them and make cakes, he's saying, I understand you have to hurry because we want to be quick, but I also understand how much work is involved. I'm going to mention the kneading to say I understand that kneading, the most laborious step, is involved here as well. Maybe Abraham is acknowledging that Sarah would be kneading the dough from which she would need to make these cakes to make clear to her that he recognized he was asking a lot of her. He requested that she hurry to undertake a difficult task because of her love for for him, and for their commitment to this mitzvah, and her respect for the strangers. And in this way, we might actually imagine Avraham talking in this manner because he wanted to honor her work by acknowledging the extra step involved here. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, go to work and go make us, go, you know, go get the money we need for home. It's another thing to say, go to work, and you're going to have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do that to understand how difficult that is. Okay, that's the first suggestion. Second suggestion, by mentioning the necessity of kneading the dough, Abraham also commented on the status of the strangers for whom he and Sarah were preparing a meal for. He wanted to ensure that the strangers would be honored with bread of a high quality, even though he didn't know them or their mission. He wanted to give them the best simply because they were hungry and in need. Yes, they had to hurry to get them food quickly. They must be hungry, but also don't give them cheap stuff. Make sure it's properly needed so that it's fine quality. The process of kneading has to do in part with making dough even and uniform. Avraham was therefore making a statement about how people whom we see as strangers are still entitled to be treated and to be seen as elements of a uniform whole that makes up our humanity. At the same time, when we're instructed not to knead on Shabbat, we're reminded that the other side of the humanity is is a uniform coin is that our respective ethnic, religious, racial, and other identities are to be celebrated. That is, even though one theme of Shabbat is which has us remembering the creation of the world, another Shabbat theme is reminding us that we were taken one nation within its own history, culture, and relationship with the divine from the midst of another tr- nation. To translate that, it means... In Shabbat is the universalistic theme of creation and the partic- particularistic theme of, of, of Yetzirah Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt. The Torah ties needing to serving others in another respect as well. The act of needing is connected to sedaka through the mitzvah to be mafresh challah to separate challah. Those who have baked challah in a traditional form know that you pull off a little piece and you burn that little piece because that was the part that was given over. And here's how we read about it in the Torah, in Devarim, in Deuteronomy chapter four. Here we go. God spoke to Moshe, telling him to speak to the Jewish people, speak to Kala Yisrael and say to them, when you come to the land which I am bringing you and you eat the land's produce, you must separate a portion for God. Your bread is not just for you. You already knew that because you left 10% of the crop in the field for the hungry. But now some for God, you must separate the first portion of your kneading as a dough offering, it must be separated just like the elevated gift that is taken from the threshing floor. You must give the first of your kneading as a portion to God for all generations. Okay? So, too, here we see in the kneading process that we wanted to have God consciousness in place here in our mitzvah of Mav Rish Chala, And that will be given over because we don't have kohenim today. This will be birds. Now let's go to the Zohar. Let's go to the Zohar, the Holy Zohar, Zohar Hakadosh. Consider how the Zohar understands the problem of being unaware of how something was needed. This is a two-page slide, so it could be large enough. There was a man who lived in the mountains. He knew nothing about those living in the city. (laughs) He sowed wheat and ate the kernels raw. One day he entered the city. They offered him good bread. You can imagine this guy. He's a farmer guy, and he moves to New York City, Manhattan, right? The man asked, what's this for? They replied, it's bread to eat. He ate, and it tasted very good. He asked, what's this made of? They answered him, wheat. Hold on, not done there. Later, they offered him thick loaves kneaded with oil. He tasted them and asked, and what are these made of? They answered, wheat. Later, they offered him royal pastry kneaded with honey and oil. He asked, and what are these made of? They answered, wheat. He said, surely I'm the master of all of these, since I eat the essence of all of these, wheat? Because of that view, he knew nothing of the delights of the world, which were lost to him. So it is with one who grasps the principle, but is unaware of all those delectable delights deriving Diverging from that principle. (laughs) I love that. That's so awesome, that Kabbalah, right? So he understands something as wheat, and yet it could be kneaded with different liquids. And by kneading it with oil, by kneading it with juice, by kneading it with water, you get totally different products totally different products. And so, too, their final takeaway is so, too, one could have principles in life, a broad principle. In fact, most Americans would agree with broad principles, I would suspect. Most Jews would agree with broad principles, a secular Jew and an ultra-Orthodox Jew, and most in between, an American conservative, an American liberal, and everything in between might agree with broad principles. And yet, how we will apply such principles, what we will need that wheat with, What liquid will we mix in to nuance that principle into an applicable uh, lesson of life wisdom to be applied to daily moral conundra? This is quite difficult. And yet that is uh, part of the beauty of kneading, to understand that what is mixed with that principle produces a whole different product. Okay, one last source, then we're going to open it up. Further, one madrash teaches that kneading and producing bread in general is connected to our process of hermeneutics an interpretation. I dropped my kids off this morning, the older two at the first day of Pardes, and the younger two at their school. And um, the older two at Pardes says, "You know, Pardes doesn't just mean orchard. It means pshat, uh, remez, drush, sowed, the four ways to interpret a text: by the literal read, by the hinted mean, uh, uh, by the hinted uh, meaning, by the extrapolation, and by the secret meaning." So there's all these different hermeneutics of how you interpret texts. That's why Jews are not a people of the book. We don't just take books literally. We grapple with them and reinterpret them throughout, our, throughout history and reapply them with new liquids being needed into it. So this is from the Midrash of Seder Eliyahu Zutta. Here's what it says. Our last, our last big text here. To what can it be compared? To a king of flesh and blood who had two servants and loved them both with a perfect love He gave each of them a measure of wheat and each a bundle of flax. What did the wise servant do? He took the flax and spun a cloth. He took the wheat and made flour. He cleaned the flour and ground, kneaded and baked it and set it on top of the table. Then he spread the cloth over it and left it until the king would come. The foolish servant, however, did nothing at all. After some time, the king returned from a journey and came into his house. He said to his servants, my sons, bring me what I gave you. One servant showed the wheat still in the box with the bundle of flax upon it. Alas for his shame, alas for his disgrace. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy Holy One, gave the Torah to Israel, it was given only in the form of wheat for us to make flour from it and flax for us to make a garment from it. I love this text because it basically says um, um, we don't just inherit something frozen and our job is to keep it frozen for the next generation. You know, this notion of continuity means give your children what your parents gave you. That would be absurd. I'm sorry, absurd is too strong. Um, That would be one approach to the tradition, um, and one that is um, actually authentic to our tradition. There is an authentic strand of Jewish thought which says, pass exactly to your children exactly what your parents gave you. And yet, what most Jews will embrace from reform to conservative to modern orthodox um, to any kind of modern, you know, liberal approach uh, to tradition, whether it's a traditionalist approach or a progressive approach, is that the tradition is evolving. And we hand something fundamentally similar and fundamentally different to our children. And that is because our our tradition does not exist outside of time and outside of culture, but encapsulated within culture and encapsulated within time, temporality and spatial um, existence. And thus the Torah is constantly reinterpreted based on our traditional hermeneutics and based upon our progressive leanings towards moral relevancy and spiritual relevancy. And thus God gives us wheat. We don't just open the box and show the wheat we make from it, right? We ground, we, we ground the flour and we knead it and we bake it and we set it on the table. We make something even more beautiful with what we have inherited and we pass it along. Of course, we don't just give our children the bread because then they'll have nothing there right? You, you don't just give the fish, you teach a person the fish, right? We have to teach our children how to bake the bread, so to speak. We have to teach them how to interpret the text, not just give them our insight as to an, a, great, a, great chap, a great new interpretation. We have to give them the skills, the critical thinking skills, to be able to interpret their own reality. We don't just want them to be liberal or conservative, reform or orthodox. We want them to critically think about, about issues um, because they'll, they won't just inher- inherit the values we have, but they can inherit a process of of engagement, okay? Indeed, here's our conclusion for here. Our job is to work with what we've received in this world in order to refine and develop it further. We need to take the disparate ingredients of life, love, life, death, justice, peace, all the civility that can come surrounded with our own passions, of maintaining our passions and maintaining our civility, and form all of this messy stuff into one structure, ourselves, our unique and authentic selves that no one else can be but ourselves. And this is true not only for the physical object that we have, but also as we see, as we interpret our texts. And the malacha of lush, of mixing the physical world with the spiritual world, the flower with the water, in order that we can transform the world for guests, for strangers, for family, for ourselves, for our communities, and for Klai Yisrael, for the Jewish community, that we should continue to survive and thrive and demonstrate to the world, as we learn from the world, but also demonstrate to the world the power of being both engaged in tradition and a process of reinterpretation. Okay, friends, let's open the floor. For questions, thoughts, agreements, disagreements, whatever you want to share.
2: A thought. Um, I really Hi, Shmuel. Hi, Hi. Um, so, a thought is just the way you teach, and some of my favorite teachers, um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Aviva Zornberg, is the beauty of bringing in that which is new psychology, literature, history, philosophy, yeah. and mixing it and finding meaning in it and mixing it with Torah. To give us something so much um, more beautiful and something that's completely
0: inspiring. Beautiful, beautiful. So here's our challenge because it's not easy. It's not easy. And the truth is, the assimilationists and the Haredim have it right. The assimilationists are right that secular wisdom, the newest, newest wisdom, is going to be a lot more powerful in many ways than studying. Torah in some ways. Reading the best Shakespeare, the best modern poetry, is going to be very different than reading the Book of Psalms. Reading the newest studies in chemistry and physics and astrobiology is going to be very different than reading the, you know, Jewish sources on matters of science, right? Reading, um, you know, the New Age self-help books on new approaches to divinity that feel so healing and empowering in the 21st century is going to feel very different than reading traditionalist approaches of divinity. So the, the, the radical assimilationists are right, right? That, geez, if you taste the wisdom of the world, why would you want this stuff? And the Haredim are right, that if you want to be Jewish, you're going to be really, um, you're, you're very likely to lose your Judaism if you immerse yourself in the secular wisdom of your day. So we should just cut it all off. Cut it all off because you're going to lose it. They're both right. And they're also right that those who put themselves in the middle, which I suspect, you, um, I don't want to suppose, but I suspect are probably all of us on this call in different ways. But to the extent that we think both matter, the Jewish tradition matters and secular wisdom matter. And to some degree, they're not always um, completely um, distinguishable right? Sometimes they're actually intertwined because a lot of Jewish thought emerged in relationship to its culture. My, my goodness, Maimonides, the greatest of Jewish philosophers, was, was, was deeply immersed in Greek philosophy. In fact, he writes in his opening of the Shemona Prakim, the eight chapters, that he can't quote the people he's quoting because the Jews will dismiss his work right? People were burning his books. He was controversial. They wanted to burn his books. This guy's a radical. Maimonides is a radical. Burn him. Get him out of our communities. He's pushing, he's, he's pushing too hard. He's bringing secular wisdom in. This guy's only trouble. They wanted to burn this guy, right? And Maimonides says, like, so I can't name the people who I'm quoting over here, but, you, but I want you to know I'm quoting some other people. He was plagiarizing. I'm not accusing him in a negative way. He, he named that he was doing this, basically. Al-Farabi, in Islamic an Islamic Gr- Greek philosopher, Al-Farabi, five, at least five of the eight chapters academic show are straight plagiarism from this guy, right? So uh, it is it is obvious that Jewish culture and Jewish thought has always emerged in relationship to that just like um, Hared- Haredim in America, ultra-Orthodox Jews in America are assimilated into, in many ways into evangelical culture, and, and liberal Jews, reformed Jews, conservative Jews, modern Orthodox Jews are in many ways assimilated into Protestant America, right? Not fully assimilated, but at least partially. And all of our Jewish thought emerges, emerges in relationship to that. And so the middle ground is really tricky to say, you know what? There are Jewish ideas that matter to me, and I'm committed to. And, you know, even though I love Shakespeare and the the best poetry of our age, I'm still going to study the Book of Psalms. I'm still interested in what Judaism adds to my relationship to science. Let me make a plug here that VBM is launching a science and Judaism series this year. If you know scientists, let them know. We're launching a series of scientists who are going to share their wisdom and relationship to Jewish thought this coming year. I'm very interested in that. And, um, and so there are some realms where I think Judaism is more advanced than secular wisdom, no doubt. If we look at things like business ethics, if we look at notions of law, if we look at ethics of speech, there's all types of realms. If we look at how we think of holidays, not merely as did you get the turkey on the table? right? Did, you know, I'm not, I'm not denigrating any approaches, right? But actually, there's a whole lot of nuance. You've probably seen those jokes as to how does, a, how does a Jew cut a turkey for Thanksgiving? Well, what size should I cut it? What knife do I use? And what hour do I cut it at? And what hour do I have to stop cutting the turkey at? Right? And what sauce do I put on? And where can I buy the sauce from? And, <laughs> right? and who is the person who cuts it? And is this person allowed to cut it? And, you know, so there's all these different uh, funny things. So, but anyways, this middle ground this middle ground, which you brought up here, Lauren, is very powerful. And here I think um, it, it, that I might be wrong. Not everyone is actually uh, prepared for that integration. Not everyone wants to live a life of intellectual struggle. That's how I understand Judaism. There's no perfect answers. It's a, it's a long, lifelong struggle to understand and to grow. And some people don't want that. They want faith to be comfort. And so they can be an assimilationist where they basically – come to simple answers, there is no God, there, there is no revelation, there is no relevance to this, this is all backwards, throw it out, because I want just some something that's gonna comfort me in my spirituality, not all this messy stuff. And someone can be Haredi and say, look, I wanna block out the outside world because it's too messy and also there's too much lies there, it's too many mistruths. But, and, and I think those approaches can be okay. I'm not saying, let's do Kiruv. Let's make every secular person religious. And, and also, let's not rage on the Kharadim. If they want to be ultra-Orthodox, let them be, you know? We don't need to persuade them not to be. Let them, because, I'm, hey, I mean, I wish, I wish better for the young girls who don't get an education and a whole bunch of other things. And, you know, th- they will have their process of change as well. But let them be. The whole Now, this middle ground is, is, uh, is, is where I want to be. I want to be in this place where we're going to, we're gonna grapple. We're gonna grapple, and we're gonna we're gonna study science and literature, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna read, um, you know, the messiness of politics, and try to convert Judaism into politics, and try to say what are the limits of how Jewish values speak to this political moment and how they don't. And um, and that's what Judaism is. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive in business ethics. It's alive in our homes and how we build our homes. It's alive in our speech. It's about everything. It's about it's about um, it's about how we vote. It's about how we use our money. It's about how we relate to strangers. For me, Judaism is about everything, and so I can't pick and choose as to where it goes and where it doesn't go. It's a lie. So, so thank you for that, Lauren. Thank you for that. That's a long-winded uh, vent for my part. <laughs> Molly? Yes, hi, Cheryl. Cheryl, please. Oh, yes, I, okay. Uh, uh, Eileen, you're on the screen. Eileen and then Cheryl. AJ, can we move where we can see everyone on the screen now? Eileen, please go ahead.
2: Um. When they, when Abraham says to Sarah, to need, to me that means that there's leavening used because if you put flour and water together, you don't need.
0: I'm sorry, say that one more time.
2: Okay, when you're baking and if you have flour and water, and you stir it together you do not need it there is no leavening agent that would make it rise you would be making a product that would be a flatbread
0: okay the
2: fact that he says knead and make cakes (laughs) indicates that there is an additional component being put in that Uh, flour uh, and uh, butter.
0: Oh, very nice, Eileen. Thank you. Good. So that's an extra layer there in, with Avraham and Sarah that 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 that, that, that process is, is, is in fact, needed. Yes, needed. And um, and we see that also by matzah, the limitations on needing. Right. And I apologize there. The problem on the screen was my fault there. Uh, I just forgot to hit the button. As you know, you can hit the button on top where you can get everyone's picture onto one screen. It's that image that looks like the... Um, the, you know the, the nine dots, the nine dots there. If you click that nine dots, you see everyone one. Okay, Cheryl, Cheryl, we'll go to you, and then I see a few other hands as well.
3: I I just really enjoyed enjoyed this. This Thank is amazing. Um, so much of what we do, or I shouldn't say we, anyone but myself, is um, in in observance or paying attention to Jewish traditions and things. Is automatic if you you know so to speak. It's uh, it's on automatic. You do it, okay? It's Friday, we do yeah, this. Right. It's Saturday, we do this. It's Sunday yeah. we do this. Right. But I, I just loved how you um, how you put it that you know, and it goes along with what everybody else is saying too, as far in so far as the um, uh, middle <clears throat> that you can do things because our tradition tells us this is what we need to do at this. <clears throat> But then there's, like you said, where somebody said, food for thought, too, that mm. more goes into it. And just to follow up with um, what Eileen said, I, I, I'm i picking um, number two uh, as for the reason that he said, hurry, hurry, hurry. Uh, which means hurry and take care of our guests because they must be hungry and tired. Because I can personally say that I wouldn't like it if... Um, Stan said to me, I know that you have to go to work and you have to do X, Y, and Z. I don't want him telling me what to do. So anyway, my side says, I pick number two.
0: Right, right. Okay, very nice, very nice. So, Cheryl didn't find my first argument compelling that it was more sensitive to name all the things that are involved. Here, maybe if I state it like this, like – um, maybe if I stated in in rather than a listing of tasks, but as a sensitivity, I say Shoshana. Those of you who know me here, you know my wife's name is Shoshana. Shoshana, I know you're going to work today as a nurse practitioner. And I know it's going to be challenging. There's going to be some rude patients and they're going to rush you from patient to patient. And, you know, you might not always feel appreciated, right. And you're going to be pushed faster and faster over there. And you're going to want to give patients more time, but you feel the urgency, right. And, um, and some, and some patients are, you know, might even be a little grumpy that day and you're going to feel the inadequacy in what you could provide because you want to give even more time and more care. And I say, and I hope you have a great day, right? Now, uh, it'd be great if I said that every day, you know, but maybe if it was stated as the empathy involved rather than Shoshana, go to work, take care of 40, pa- 40 patients today and right, do X, Y, and Z. So thank you for that. And Cheryl, the other thing I want to say there is, I think that, you know, w- one of my rants is that we make Judaism for children instead of adults, right? That Judaism is infantilized. And we, um, the reason it never is relevant for a lot of adults is because they still have a childhood version But the second reason is because even as adults, we hold on to an idea, which is powerful rather than a process of continuing to evolve those ideas. And so what I'm suggesting with the Malachot here is that they can give us the questions to ask each week so that we can have a renewed relationship to Shabbat. When I think of needing, what is my relationship to the physical and spiritual this week? What is my relationship to, um, Uh, to guess this week what is my relationship well really to all these things that we raised here Um, my relationship to the secular and the holy as we talked about as well and so um, uh, yeah so I appreciate you saying that about doing things on rote because I really think it's not sustainable Um, it's really not sustainable to do things by rote yes okay I think uh, who was next here yes hi uh, yes Andrea so I, on,
4: have, on. I have two comments. First of all, about that passage from Genesis, which I happen to love. As soon as uh, the word ugoat was used rather than lekan, it's kind of a coded word. Ugoat in that culture denoted a ceremonial cake. In fact, there's a whole body of feminist study that interprets that. As you know, uh, up until the Second Temple times, the prophets were railing against the women that were making ugoat for the Queen of Heaven. They were ceremony or offerings, so that immediately denotes it's a different level of bread. So oh, be involved, beautiful. Uh, Th- about nice. that. So that right away. Very nice, Sorry, thanks. my voice. The second All
0: good. All good, yeah.
4: second comment I want to make is that human beings, including a lot of Jews, tend to want a binary existence. They want to see black and white, they want dogma. Right. And in fact, the Torah. You know, the second tablets were given with the oral Torah. So even a couple of weeks ago, in Aruvin in the daf, was talking about the infinity of the oral Torah, that the tradition continues. And that's, you know, we continue to unfold it. I mean, look at sexuality. Right now we're being opened up to the spectrum of sexuality and a lot of, we're struggling with that in the tradition, how to address it, we're struggling with it in the culture. But that's uh, coming from the times that we're in, and it demands that we go back to Torah, and you mm-hmm. know, try to develop uh, a um, a moral responsibility with dealing with that. So we can. The Christians want to look at the Old Testament quote and say, "This is the way it is. Look at that line in Tavo or say But in fact we pick up on that and look at commentary and commentary and struggle with tradition to develop what is the infinity of Torah.
0: Very nice. Very nice. Thank you for that. I think that's exactly right. Yes. And Barbara, we'll come to you next. That infinity and, and that, oh, that, that Torah shabbal pet, keeping it alive and constantly in motion. And I think also that that would enable us to bridge the gap between denominations as well. That if we understood that we're going on different paces. I know many of you might underst- relate to non-denominational Judaism, what other case is, but going with a framework that might still be helpful. That we have Reform and Conservative and Orthodox and Renewal and Reconstructionist and and you know and so on. Um, that um, that we are all. Each denomination is involved in a process of Torah Shabal of reinterpreting. And there's different processes and different paces involved, but everyone is doing it. No one can say they're not reinterpreting. In fact, the charadium, the ultra-orthodox, and again, I'm, I'm not picking on them. I'm actually trying to do the opposite. i give a charitable read as to saying that they have the right to be as they are. And there's, they're even doing something authentic. But they, in adding new stringencies to their practice, are also reinterpreting. Those stringencies weren't there. This idea of wearing black and white, this idea of wearing a strimal, wearing a fur hat, this idea of wearing a wig, you know, things like this, um, these aren't ancient Judaism. Um, they're also reinterpreting and retranslating. And that's fine. That's fair. Just like as reformer, conservative or modern orthodox, there's reinterpretation, right? Um, and that, that it's all going to look and feel different. And so we're all doing that. And, and your point about dogma is really great because... Uh, here look i want to say something about dogma because i do think beliefs are really powerful and necessary right like i believe in god i believe in olam haba i believe in a next world i don't speak about those with certainty what do i know what do i know i don't point to a verse and then fundamental as in a fundamentalism type fashion say the verse says it so it's true i just have my own orientations based on my personality my experiences my own kind of faith level that I've come to the conclusion to live with in relationship to my idea of a God, my relationship to an afterlife, not with certainty, not as a hard dogma, but as a soft dogma. So too, in the realm of values, I believe in human dignity. Human dignity is not a empirically, empirically measured value. I can't prove to someone that humans have dignity. I can't prove to someone by some empirical measurement that there's Selim Elohim. Humans are created in the image of God. I believe that theology that humans are created in the image of God because the text says it, and not just because the text says it, but because that's, that's what I want to believe. I want to live in a world where humans are given value and not mistreated, that humans have an absolute dignity to them. So just as lo- loosely as I hold my belief in God, my belief in an afterlife, I also hold this idea of egalitarianism, that all people are equal, all people have infinite dignity, without being able to prove any of this. I also believe in love. I can't prove love. I can't prove I love my wife or she loves me. There's no way to prove it. right? But I live believing that this thing I'm experiencing and that in a Descartes fashion, I don't know what someone else knows. I don't even know what I know. But I believe that she loves me also based on her actions and words. And she believes me based on my actions and my words. So we have to live in a world of soft dogmas, a world where we hold on to beliefs that help us to live in a messy world, right? So how do we hold on to these beliefs, theological beliefs, value beliefs, beliefs? Right, and yet not hold them so absolutely that we we burn people who don't hold them. We want to burn an atheist, or we want to burn a fundamentalist, right? Or that we want to burn someone who doesn't believe in human dignity. That that one's even harder, right? Someone who rejects human dignity. Um, What do we do with that? Something that we believe so strongly. Now, what do we do about something that's not a belief? Right? For me, I get very worked up, according to some, too worked up about people who reject science. Right. If you reject science, if you reject what the high majority of scientists come to a conclusion, then I have a real problem with that because now we're not dealing with beliefs. We're not dealing with the subjective realm of our own um, subjectivity. We're dealing with with what what might be the most, you know, the most um, the, the data that we know the most, that which can be measured. It's not perfect. We know science will be disproved in the next generation. But we have to live with empirical data. We have to live honoring science, things like vaccines. I'm sorry if there's an anti-vaxxer here if I'm offending. I believe we have to believe in vaccines, right? We have to believe in what medical experts say and follow best practices. And I know I get in trouble for saying that. There's people who think we should honor certain politicians and their beliefs rather than what scientists say. And that gets me in trouble for saying that. But that's my belief. And so this is difficult. This is a difficult time because we have to figure out how to hold our beliefs strongly and fight for our beliefs in the world, but so loosely that we not become fundamentalists or that we burn others in the process. And and as I've said, we see both extremes today, people who have no beliefs at all, they're just all kind of wishy-washy, it's news headline to news headline, there's no values that are anchoring them. And then the opposite extreme, those who are not um, critically thinking at all are just purely dogmatic, and live in a world of fundamentalisms, whether it's a political fundamentalism, an atheist fundamentalism, a religious fundamentalism. So this is a challenge, and this is Torah Shabal Peh. This is the oral tradition, that we live rooted, but evolving. Okay, Barbara, please. You're still on mute, Barbara. There you go, good.
2: Well, now this seems really, really trivial compared to what No, no, please, no. Said. nothing
0: is trivial here. Nothing is okay. trivial. Okay,
2: but you know, when I think about needing, I, I, I can't help but believe that that it's more important than just the physical movement of hands on, on flour and water and yeast. Because well, what is happening is that yeah. a simple thing is now enhanced with effort
1: yeah.
2: and with energy mm. and with focus and for the person who is doing the kneading with catharsis mm. and it's it it is almost like a metaphor because treating life either simply by just throwing together flour and water and putting it in the oven or adding the yeast and adding the kneading and adding the energy to, to what we do and what we say and how we wow. feel and how we treat wow. people is, wow. is very important.
0: Yeah, Barbara, that was super trivial. That was just so trivial, Barbara. <laughs> but that was just awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. And 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 that the power of the hands, the power of the hands, the catharsis, the energy, and then to think of our hands the way if you are a medical professional, the way you use your hands. If you are someone who hugs someone or holds someone, the power of the hands to heal, right? to transfer energy, um, and I don't mean that just in an energy healing sense, but the sense of, of, of compassion we can express with our hands, the, the loving touch that we can give another. And um, it's so beautiful what you shared, so thank you for that. And to, think of, and to think of us needing in that way as well, that it's what we call in, in the tradition koach gavra, the force that comes from the human energy that yeah. brings a new element. It's the mystical element of our transferring our energy, our love into this kneading process. Yeah. Yes, please, yes, Andrea, yeah.
4: Yeah, so um, I think that's actually, there's a very deep dimension to what you just said, Barbara. I'm a hollow maker and I bake bread, a couple other kinds of breads a couple times a week, and I've given classes, so, um, Baking bread, they've now discovered even in the Paleolithic, we were humans were growing some kind of grain and making cakes and maybe wild yeast. It opens up ancient pathways and it was for eons and eons, it was the women that carried this tradition even before Judaism. So the kneading of bread opens up some very deep human and very deep uh, pathways in our DNA that touches on all that you're saying. So it's, it, it's no mistake that Kala continued into the temples and it's also one of our sacred acts right now. So I think there's a lot to what you said there.
0: Mm, thank you for that. And thank you for those comments on the side. Carol, I like that. Human hands, think of human evolution, or not just, not just human, all evolution, but this notion of human hands versus animal paws. Um, And what that means like why were humans given these hands? What is our role with these hands? I love that. Thank you for that Uh, Yes, dr. Mok you want to share something here? You're on mute still
5: Hello everyone. Hi rabbi, you know, uh, I was very struck again by something you mentioned about uh, being in the middle, you know on the one hand the ancient Torah teachings and on the other hand all the new modern day learnings that are just blow your mind on a daily basis. Um, And, but yet I, I I find this um, both upsetting, yet utterly wonderful. (laughs) It's it's the the lifelong learning concept in Judaism. And this is when we bring in not just, am I an American first or am I a Jew first? Or am I a Zionist first? Or or am I a hybrid of the three? Clearly, most of us are some form of a hybrid of the three um, in our Jewish identity. Um, You also mentioned something about assimilation. And uh, I just re-watched the other day um, "Fiddle on the Roof. And again, I'll never forget the scene when Tevye is talking to his one daughter who is involved with a Cossack. And he says, on the one hand, on the other hand, and then he says... There is no other hand. Mm. <laughs> so traumatic, you know, about where is the give and take in Judaism? What where is it okay to cross a line? Right. When is it not okay to cross a line? And there's it's so it's so hard to um, to actually find a common ground within ourselves and within mm-hmm. others. I just thought I'd add that little
0: piece. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. You know, um, I, there's this, um, forgive me if I, if you've heard me say this in the last few weeks, I said it, I said it somewhere a few weeks ago, I can't remember where, but there is this, um, yeah, that was really powerful. Uh, this uh, Hasidic story about, about two folks lost in the dark forest. Um, and, um, and the truth is, I could say it to myself each day, and, and, I, and I find it, I find it helpful. And they finally stumble upon each other. And they're so thrilled to have stumbled into the other And they say, I'm so happy to have found you all alone in this dark forest. I've been terrified. They say, now you must know the way out of the forest, out of this dark forest. And the other one says, I don't know the way out. And the first one says, I also don't know the way out. But they both say, but we know the path we walked on is not the way out. So let's walk together knowing that we both know a path that's not the way out. And so that's the best we have to some degree, is to try to walk through a dark forest without answers Um, But walking together in that, and this tension around assimilation around, um, around us, yes, exactly holding multiple identities. You know, as you said, American, a Jew, a Zionist, there's all these different identities. Maybe someone here is queer. Maybe your liberal or conservative identity is really strong. Maybe if you're a person of color, that's a really big, strong part of your identity. If you're, maybe your age means a lot to you. A teenager thinks a lot about being a teenager, a senior about being a senior. There's all these things we are, right? And all these things we're holding. And where does the Jewish piece, is that one piece among many? Where is it infused into all of it, right? And where is it indistinguishable? My humanity versus my Jewishness. Are those separate things, right? I'm a human being and I'm a Jew. I'm an American, I'm a Jew. Are those intertwined? And actually, is it true? Like some of us might say, actually, I don't have, you know, there's that acquisition, uh, that uh, accusation of dual loyalties. American Jews, can they be trusted? Dual loyalties, which is is an anti-Semitic, you know, accusation that Jews can't be trusted. At the same time, right? I do feel loyal to Jews and to Americans, right? What does it mean to actually be committed to multiple things, right? I'm committed to, I'm also committed to Africans. As an American, I'm not only concerned about Africans, I'm concerned about the welfare of Africa, right? Does that make, give me another loyalty? Right? I'm concerned about humanity. I'm concerned about animals like in the, in the Indian Ocean. Um, <laughs> so, um, and so what does it mean to care about a lot of people and a lot of things? And, and I love that about there is no other hand. And I think one of the ways I think about Elul moving towards the high holidays is that we don't know the way out of the forest. We are merely riding on a bike or motorcycle, right? We're all in different stages of life. Some of us might feel like we're on a vehicle going 100 miles an hour. Some of us might feel like we're going slower these days. We're going on a five-mile-an-hour bike, right? We're all in different life phases right now. But but the question is not how do I get off the bike, right? That's death, right? The question is how do I realign the direction of where my bike, is, my bike is going, right? How do I fill my tires, maintain my bike, my motorcycle, maintain what I'm riding, make sure I'm riding next to the right people, riding in the right direction? And there is no right direction, but realign my path. And so there is no other hand. is such, such a funny thing. And the truth is, in many things in our life, there is no other hand. Right? There are things in our life we will have to say, this is an absolute. What would it be? What would it like to live life without absolutes, right? There have to be things in our life that are absolutes. And yet there's other things we have to hold much more loosely where well, there is another hand. There is another hand. And that's really uh, difficult. That's really hard to do. And that's what it means to be in a family, what it means to be in a community, what it means to be in a tradition. That's going to be more dialectic. There's going to be a back and forth. It's not just, not just one absolute. And so uh, we're all kind of navigating those tensions. But, I'll, but the last thing I'll say about that, and then we have time for one more person, is um, in preparing for death, as we all do, preparing for death, we prepare to let go of even our absolutes, right? Maybe you're someone who checks your finances once a day, maybe three times a day. Maybe you're someone who calls a person once a day. Maybe you're a person who uh, does certain health practices, like take a walk. When we are getting ready to die, we let go of even those things we hold absolutes, right? All we have left is what's within us in that moment, right? Our faith, our beliefs, our our emotions, maybe the people around us, but even in a coronavirus time, that's one of the most tragic parts is people dying alone, right? And so we prepare for a world even where we have to let go of everything, let go, we lose control of everything. Okay, let's take one more person before we wrap up. I know it's hard to go after a death comment. <laughs> Anything from Eddie, from Cody, Avital, Susan? Who else do we not hear from yet? Okay, so let me give another 30 seconds of silence and otherwise I'll move to our concluding thoughts here. Yehuda? So, friends, um, I wish everyone uh, a good day. And I don't just mean good day anymore. I mean it so deeply. I mean it so deeply. We need good days. We need good days. Uh, Some days are just so hard. If you're alone in your apartment or your condo or your home, wherever you are, that is so hard. If you are um, – if you are – If you are sick at all, that's really hard. If you're in financial duress, that's really hard. If you're feeling challenges in any way, that's really, really hard. And so when I say good day, I don't just mean objectively the things outside of our control being okay. I mean in your own internal subjective realm that we're all okay today. And my hope is that in needing, as we use our hands today, Barbara, we use our hands today, whatever we're doing, we are elevating the physical towards the spiritual. And we're doing that within ourselves also. Whatever physical act we're involved with, this can be mindfulness. I am washing dishes. I'm making a physical act, a spiritual act, right? I am taking out the garbage. I'm taking a physical act into a spiritual act. What, I'm eating food. Whatever I'm doing today, we can be a part of what we're calling needing today. Elevating the physical towards the spiritual. Elevating our consciousness, our mind, uh, becoming attuned with our mindfulness so that we can feel more healthy, more healthy on a spiritual sense of feeling um, that the messiness of the world, we are holding it rather than being held by it because we are spiritually connected to the beliefs that we hold loosely, but also powerfully. And we're doing that together. So friends, I wish you a great day and I hope you'll join me 11 o'clock next week. And I hope you will um, join us 10 o'clock after that. I hope you'll also join me at one o'clock today with our friend Judy Gottschalk in an hour from now for her book talk. I'm guessing she's here uh, just to test out the technology. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> great. And we'll be back in a book talk with her. Otherwise, can
3: you, can you hear me?
0: Yeah, we hear you great. We okay. hear you great. So we're perfect.
3: Just testing okay. it out.
0: Awesome. Okay. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Be well. Be Thank safe. You always,
2: so all. Always.
0: always here for you all. Thank you for all your beautiful comments.